Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today is the final part of the miniseries on Anne Boleyn, and as you can see, it's a bit of a whopper. This will be the longest episode that I've ever done, and probably also the darkest. There won't be many jokes in this one, because it's hard to say, ha 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 ha, loads of people died. But it is a very important story, and fascinating to see how someone at the very top can be ripped down in a matter of days, and be dead just a few weeks later. Before starting though, I have an announcement that I think you'll find exciting, unless of course you've already seen it on the Facebook page. Next week, I will be releasing another chat episode, this time with Claire Ridgway of The Anne Boleyn Files, bridging the gap between this series and the one on Jane Seymour. We had a really fascinating discussion about a load of things, including what we think makes Anne a character that writers return to again and again, our favourite representation of her in film, and a debate on her fall. It was a ton of fun, and I think you're really going to like it. This podcast would, of course, be nothing without you, my beloved listeners, and so I'd like to thank all of you who have been commenting on Facebook and Twitter, but especially my generous and wonderful patrons on Patreon. Today, I would like to thank new donators Judy, Megan, Danny and Eduardo, as well as all my long-standing supporters. If you would like to join them in their generosity, then please visit patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. With all that admin out of the way, let's get on with the show. To all you new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 44, Anne Boleyn, Around the Throne, The Thunder Roars. Last time, I gave you a survey of Anne's three or so years on the throne, showing you just how much she managed to squeeze into her relatively brief time as queen. At the turn of the year 1536, things seemed to be going pretty well. Certainly nothing could have prepared her for the horror that was her final year. Indeed, the year started out pretty well for her, as on the 7th of January, Catherine of Aragon died at Kimbolton Castle. Her passing was marked with great mourning by some, but not at court, at least not while the king and queen were looking. Indeed, the news was apparently greeted with massed celebrations. Here it is in Yusuf Chapuis, and please note the horror dripping from his pen. Quote, you could not conceive the joy that the king and those who favour this concubinage have shown at the death of a good queen. The king, on the Saturday he heard the news, exclaimed, God be praised that we are free from all suspicion of war. On the following day, Sunday, the king was clad all over in yellow from top to toe, except the white feather he had in his bonnet, and the little bastard was conducted to mass with trumpets and other great triumphs. 
After dinner, the king entered the room in which the ladies danced, and there did several things like one transported with joy. At last, he sent for his little bastard, and carrying her in his arms, he showed her first to one and then to another. He has done the like on other days since, and has run some courses at Greenwich. The little bastard, to whom he is referring, is of course Princess Elizabeth. And while we can argue whether this account is an exaggeration or not, that to me is not especially important. The main thing that I think we can draw from this is that according to the man who had spent years and years searching for ways to portray this couple as being on the verge of collapse, Henry and Anne were united and happy at the dawn of 1536. Henry, far from being angry at the birth of another daughter, appears as a doting father to her. Their little family appeared strong, their marriage indefatigable. So what the hell went wrong? The key facts are these. Anne Boleyn's miscarriage, his infatuation with Jane Seymour, Anne's split with Thomas Cromwell, machinations at court, and her supposed adultery, and I'll deal with each of these in turn. Okay, so quite a bit to go through, so let's start with the miscarriage. This was Anne's third pregnancy, and by all accounts, it was in the early stages when she miscarried at the end of January 1536. Here is Chapuis' account. Quote, this king's concubine miscarried of a child who had the appearance of a male about three and a half months old, at which miscarriage the king has certainly shown great disappointment and sorrow. He goes on to say that she blamed the Duke of Norfolk, her uncle, because he had frightened her by informing her that Henry had had a terrible accident while jousting, but that the people of court believed that the real reason was, quote, entirely owing to the defective constitution and to utter inability to bear male children, whilst others imagined that the fear of the king treating her as he treated his late queen. Now, whether a Tudor midwife would be able to accurately tell the sex of a miscarried fetus of three months or so is highly doubtful, but that's not important, of course, because it was believed at the time. Later writers, especially those hostile to Elizabeth I, sought to denigrate Anne as a witch by making lyric claims about the deformity of this child, but this did not seem to occur at the time. The mere fact of a miscarried son was enough that history seemed to be repeating itself with the wife of the king. Catherine's inability to give Henry a son had been a key reason behind his seeking of an annulment that had cost him so much time, effort, and indeed friends. Was it all for naught? Going back to Chapuis' account, you may remember that he brought up a tournament at Greenwich. Well, while competing in that tournament, he was knocked from his horse and was badly injured. This was pretty serious, and there was genuine fear for his life. He was unconscious for two hours. This was a man falling from a huge horse in a full suit of armour, then had that horse fall on him, and he was unconscious for two hours. This really was a brush with death. Could this near meeting with the Reaper have caused him to rethink his marriage choices? It is also clear that Anne would have been deeply concerned for Henry's welfare. Her affection for him, I think, cannot be doubted, but equally she knew that if Henry was to die, there would be no mercy for her in the factional struggle that would result. A couple of weeks later, Chapuis wrote another report back concerning an argument between Anne and Henry over this and the miscarriage. Quote, When the news of her miscarriage was brought to him, he only observed, I see that God will not give me male children and that, having gone to visit her, on leaving the room he added by way of farewell with much ill grace, When you are up, I will come and speak to you. Anne then replied forcefully, reiterating that miscarriage was due to her worry for him after the accident, and, quote, The love that she bears him, which is greater and more vehement than that of the late queen, so much so that whenever she hears of his loving another woman but her, she is broken-hearted. Chapuis, though, makes this story somewhat less believable, when he claims that Henry was barely speaking to her right now, abandoning her for long stretches of time, 
and this was a sign that the marriage was failing. This was somewhat hopeful and misleading of Chapuis, as Henry at this point was still engaging in a concerted diplomatic push to get Anne recognised more widely in Europe as his wife, and Anne herself seemed to come out of her understandable post-miscarriage funk by remarking to attendants that she was confident that her next pregnancy would have the desired result. But of course, she was no longer alone in this marriage, because, in the theme of history repeating itself, there was another woman. Now again, this was probably to be expected. Henry had had plenty of mistresses, usually taking one at a time while his wife was pregnant. This, though, was of no comfort to Anne for a few reasons. One, she had come to the throne this way. She knew exactly how this story could end. Two, she had still not given Henry a son and her time was running out. And three, Henry's new squeeze appeared to be reading directly from Anne's playbook. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about Jane Seymour here, as of course I'll be covering her in much more detail in her own episode, but since she is important to our story, I will briefly talk about her. Like Anne, she had caught the king's eye while she had become one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting. Like Anne, she had played hard to get in the game of courtly love and refused to sleep with Henry unless he made her queen. Like Anne, she had a brother who was one of the king's intimates. And like Anne, she had the king's rapt attention. Normally, as I've said, a king taking a mistress was not of much concern because of the separation of love, lust and marriage. Taking a wife was largely a business and diplomatic decision, most often agreed upon before bride and groom had even met. If they were young enough, they might not have had any say in the matter at all. The woman almost certainly never did. With Anne, though, it was different, as Eric Ives explains. Quote, In marrying for love, Henry, in effect, confused the role of the wife and the mistress, with the result that the personal emotion was the basis of his relationship with Anne and hers with him. Anne was therefore right to say that her feelings were more exposed than those of Catherine. This ties in with the next thing, which was factional intrigue. The Tudor court, just like so many others, was really a snake pit of rival factions. Whenever power is concentrated in the hands of one man, as it largely was at the time, there will always be lots of people who want influence, and only so many positions that one could hold which could bring this about. This will inevitably lead to factionalism. Anne herself had exploited this during her rise and been a leader of her faction ever since becoming queen. But of course, power invites jealousy, and there were many who desperately wished to tear her down. These focused around three people. Princess Mary, Jane Seymour, and Thomas Cromwell. To deal with each of them in turn, Mary was a threat to Anne, ironically thanks to the tragic death of her mother. Catherine was not the best figurehead for those wishing to oppose Anne, because she was intransigent, old, and wouldn't have more children. Mary, by contrast, was young. The other obstacle that Catherine removed through her death was the nature of Mary's birth. According to the law, Mary had been born to an illegitimate marriage, but that did not necessarily make her illegitimate, as she was born in what was known as a bona fide parentum, essentially meaning in good faith. Her parents had believed their marriage to be illegitimate, and that could mean that Mary was legitimate. All Henry need do was recognise her, and suddenly she would be the heir apparent again, assuming he had no sons with Anne, without the embarrassment of Henry having to say he made a mistake in annulling his marriage. This was all theoretical, of course, but it suddenly made Mary dangerous again. A great effect to Anne, though, emerged from the religious conservatives, who adopted Jane Seymour as their great hope. These were people who were opposed to religious reform and hated the break with Rome. It's become fashionable amongst some modern historians to suggest that these people dangled Jane in front of Henry as a sort of feminine bait, which I think is all rather simplistic and gross. 
What I think is close to the mark is that people like Edward Seymour, Sir Nicholas Carew, the Marquess of Exeter, and so on, took advantage of Henry's attraction to Jane to attempt to supplant the Boleyns. It's a subtle difference, but an important one. This view is one supported by Chapuis, who wrote that Carew, quote, is constantly advising Mistress Seymour and other conspirators on how to run against her, meaning Anne, of course. Now, this can be overblown. Chapuis relates all manner of plots and schemes during Anne's reign, many of them self-contradictory. G.W. Bernard is particularly good in his biography of Anne Boleyn at, at picking out the inconsistencies in his account. He writes that, quote, Chapuis' letter is thus being made to bear a very heavy weight of factional interpretation. It is impossible to prove a negative, yet there does not appear to be enough evidence to substantiate the factional historian's claim of an active, intriguing, manipulating Aragonese faction. But this is only one view, and as Bernard himself says, just because there isn't a huge amount of evidence to back it up doesn't mean that this faction was not highly influential. The circumstantial evidence does seem to back it up. But there was undoubtedly one other person with whom she fell out that did have a big influence in her fall, her former ally Thomas Cromwell. The first evidence we have of a split between the two comes from Chapuis, who for once can be trusted on this because he spoke personally to Cromwell about it, though as usual it seems that he rather exaggerated for effect. He states that Cromwell at the time feared for his life. Quote, I recollected very well his telling me that she would like to see his head off his shoulders. He then went on to say, quote, He had, however, admitted to himself that the day might come when fate would strike him as it had struck his predecessors in office. Then he would arm himself with patience and place himself for the rest in the hands of God. This is, of course, a reference to the fates of Thomas Wolsey and Thomas More, who had both died after falling from the king's favour as a result of his desire to marry Anne Boleyn. Making an enemy of Anne had not been good for the health of anyone so far, and it is not unreasonable for Cromwell to think that he had more than his job and position at stake if he and the Queen fell out. The breach between the two became clear for all to see at an infamous sermon delivered by Anne's almoner, John Skip, on Passion Sunday. Quote, A sermon preached by Mr Skip in the King's Chapel upon Passion Sunday in the year of our Lord 1536, on the text Quis ex arguet me de precato, defending the clergy from their defamers and from the immoderate zeal of men in holding up to public reprobation the faults of any single clergyman as if it were the fault of all, he insisted upon the example of Ahuserus, who was moved by a wicked minister to destroy the Jews. He urged that the king's counsellor ought to take good heed what advice he gave in altering ancient things, and no person wished to take away the ceremonies of the church, such as holy water, holy bread, etc. That alterations ought not to be made except in cases of necessity. The preacher insisted on the strict following of God's word, that Christ chose ignorant followers to teach men that nobility standeth not in worth but grace, and he cited the example of Solomon to show that he lost his true nobility towards the end of his life by taking new wives and concubines. He insisted on the need of a king being wise in himself and resisting evil counsellors who tempted him to ignoble actions by the history of Rehobium observing that if a stranger visited this realm and saw those who were called noble, he would conceive that all true nobility was banished from England. Against evil counsellors who suggested the alteration in the established customs, he instanced the history of Haman and Ahuserus. He then explained and defended the ancient ceremonies of the church. This is a rather extraordinary sermon delivered by Anne's chaplain, but I don't want to go too far in assuming that he was simply Anne's mouthpiece here, as historians like Eric Ives and David Starkey have done. This sermon is undoubtedly a massive attack on Thomas Cromwell. 
There was not a single governmental pie in which Cromwell did not have his fingers. Outside of Henry, he was, to all intents and purposes, the government. There was no more powerful advisor than he. However, to assume that just because this man was Anne's chaplain, this means that he is giving this sermon under her orders, does make a couple of leaps of logic that don't sit well with me. His sermon, if anything, is an attack on religious reform, defending the church against the anti-monastic reforms that would result in the dissolution of the monasteries. One could argue that really it was this that Skin was attacking, and he was quite capable of doing so under his own steam. However, this argument, I think, ignores two rather important things. First, to attack Cromwell at this time was, to an extent, to attack the king, and that was a very dangerous thing to do. As many priests and monks had found in the last few years, clerical vestments and monastic vows did not save you from a violent death if you opposed the king. I find it hard to believe that Skip would have done this if he did not believe that his mistress would at least back him up. And second, even if Anne had not had anything to do with it, that certainly would have been the appearance. People would have thought that she was attacking Henry's main man, and at the end of the day, that was all that mattered. Just as Anne was seeing history repeating itself with her miscarriages and Henry's growing affection and possible infatuation with Jane Seymour, Cromwell would have seen the parallels with the fate of Wolsey. He had been by the Cardinal's side during his fall, and many of the same things were happening. For example, his foreign policy was being thrown into chaos when Charles V ordered Chapuis to come to terms with Henry, as, with Catherine now dead, he had diplomatic cover to weed Henry off the French alliance. That was, though, tricky for Henry, as one of the stipulations for an alliance with the Empire was that Princess Mary should be made heir and that England be brought back into normal relations with Rome. Showing that his relationship with Anne was still strong at this point, Henry refused to make any deal that did not recognise his marriage with Anne or the legitimacy of Princess Elizabeth and any future children that they might have to take the throne. Cromwell and Chapuis were taken back by this. They clearly thought that Henry would be willing to deal, and Henry angrily fell out with his chief minister over this, saying that he needed to remember his place. This all gets rather complicated, so I won't go any further with all the wrangling, but the gist is that Cromwell, like his predecessors, was finding out that Henry's affection for Anne and his undoubted dislike of his decisions being questioned meant that everything he had built and achieved could be taken away at any moment. While Anne might not have been the primary antagonist, she was the symbol. She was the reason the king was pushing back. She was the threat, even if she wasn't personally at the centre of the action. It's important to note that the spectre of Anne, more than Anne herself, was key in all of this. Cromwell was an immensely powerful man, and there is no more dangerous person than one backed into a corner who feels in danger of losing everything. He was not an enemy you wanted to make, and it seems that Anne was in his crosshairs. We now move on to the final and most contentious reason for her fall. I've often said that I'm not a huge fan of G.W. Berman's reading of Anne in his biography, Anne Boleyn Fatal Attractions, but I find him to be a superb devil's advocate to the more popular modern readings of her. He rather dismisses a lot of the arguments that I've put forward so far, and starts his chapter on the accusations of adultery made against Anne by saying, quote, The unpersuasive arguments of Anne's fall so far, that Henry turned against her because she had failed to provide him with a son, or that because he had fallen in love with another woman, or that a conservative faction or Thomas Cromwell successfully intrigued against her, share the assumption that Anne was innocent. The charges of adultery, and especially the charge of incest with her brother, were, it is widely believed, so preposterous that no one can take them seriously. But is it so certain that Anne was innocent? Was the evidence against her really so preposterous? He goes on to say that one of the reasons why historians have dismissed the accusations is because, quote, 
the legal procedures followed were in many ways a travesty. This goes against the argument of Eric Ives, who dismisses the charges out of hand, and more or less refuses to dignify most of them with a detailed rebuttal. So what were these accusations of adultery, and could they have been true? Well, well, there are four men who will be accused of sleeping with Anne and be brought to trial, and interestingly, much of the evidence that convicted them came from, Anne, came from Anne's own mouth. The first was Mark Smeaton, a courtly musician. He and Anne were caught by one of Cromwell's informers having a little tete-a-tete in one of her chambers. Anne would later claim that Smeaton made extravagant declarations of love for her, which she batted away dismissively. Her enemies would claim that she had been sleeping with him since 1534 and was in fact paying him off for his silence and continued intercourse. Their versions of this exchange is quite different. Man number two was a very senior member of Henry's inner circle, Henry Norris. Indeed, it could be argued that he was Henry's closest companion. He was also very close to the Queen and a key member of the Boleyn faction. He was fabulously wealthy and powerful and unmarried. He was, though, in a sort of on-again-off-again relationship with Mary Shelton, Anne's cousin and former mistress of the king. Anne would later recall, quote, I asked him why he went not through with his marriage. He stated that he would tarry a time. Anne then replied extremely foolishly, You look for dead man's shoes. For it all came to the king but good, you would look to have me. Norris seems appalled at this accusation, replying, quote, If he should have any such thought, his head were off. Anne then said that, quote, she could undo him if she would. This was playing with fire. To speculate about the king's death was treason. You just didn't talk about it. And yet, Anne was. Man number three was Francis Weston, who seems to have come on to Anne in a similar way to Norris. He apparently had been flirting with Norris's squeeze Mary Shelton despite being married, and when Anne admonished him, he said, quote, He loved one in her house better than them both then clarifying in case there was any doubt that he was referring to her. Man number four was William Brereton, another member of the Privy Chamber, like Weston and Norris, with whom she is supposed to have slept with the previous November. Man number five, though, was the most sensational of them all. Like all but Smeaton, he was a member of Henry's Privy Chamber, and like all of them, he was close to the Queen. But he was closer than anyone, because it was her brother, George Boleyn. Wow. So the accusations against George are rather confusing. Anne and George were clearly very close, there is no doubt of that. They conspired together and they trusted each other. Both were immensely powerful people, who were influential with the king. The evidence against them is incredibly thin, but one argument was that she slept with him so that she might have a son and pass him off as Henry's. Believe me, we'll be coming back to that one. Now these accusations all come either right before Anne's arrest or right after it on her own admission, so it seems to me that either these accusations of adultery were the sole reason for her fall, or they were used to bring her down after she had been weakened by the other factors that I described earlier. But are they true? Well, most historians say no. It's all a malicious lie cooked up by someone, I would argue probably Cromwell, to justify her fall and increase its severity, and deflect from the real reason for the whole thing, which was one or a combination of the things that I talked about before. However, there is a view, popularised by G.W. Bernard, which challenges this. First thing to say is that he readily admits there is no smoking gun here. If we were to try her in a modern court of law with the evidence that we have, and assuming of course that the penalty for adultery while the Queen was still death, then we'd be forced to say not guilty. His argument, put simply, so I apologise to him if he's listening, is that Anne was naturally flirtatious and Henry was always more in love with her than she with him. 
He argues that the sheer number of people that called her a whore or harlot or similar should suggest to us that maybe we shouldn't just dismiss it all out of hand. He further suggests that she, frustrated with Henry's poor performance in the bedroom and is continuing to pursue mistresses, decided to engage in affairs as a sort of defiant act. He writes, quote, Anne was playing with fire. Of course such behaviour was foolish and reckless. But such is human nature and such is the force of sexual desire that men and women do take risks and behave in ways that onlookers, not so driven, might well think extraordinarily imprudent. He then goes through all the specific dates that Anne was supposed to have slept with the various men and suggests reasons why that might have been the case. Most famously, that it was a desperate attempt to become pregnant again. He finally says that the weight of the witnesses that came forward that included some pretty important people, as we shall see, should make one wonder. However, I'm not buying it. I'm not saying that it is impossible that Anne had affairs. We can't prove a negative. But I can only really see two plausible reasons for why she would act this way, and both are laid out by Bernard. The first is that she was naturally a little slash a lot reckless, and naturally flirtatious, and did it for that reason. Perhaps she was angry at Henry for conducting affairs. Perhaps she wanted revenge. Perhaps she actually fell for these men. Whatever it was, some personality flaw made her do this. Except that doesn't really square with the Anne that we have seen so far. Anne was not a reckless woman. She was calculating and shrewd. She was willing to gamble, yes, to take a leap. She had not defeated Catherine and taken her crown by being a cautious woman. But reckless? I don't think so. The second argument is that she did it in a desperate desire to become pregnant. But was she that desperate that she would sleep with like five different guys, four of them all incredibly close to the king to do it? Would she really have banged her brother to do that? Let's, for the sake of the argument, say that she was that desperate. She was about to do something for which the penalty had recently become changed to mean death. It was treason. In that case, you would want to keep the number of people in on this secret as small as possible. Really, you want only one guy. Five just seems so unlikely, and don't get me started on how her brother got pulled into this. But I just don't buy that she would have been that desperate. Yes, she would have been concerned, scared even. She knew what had happened to Catherine. She had to an extent made it happen. But she was still younger than Catherine was when she stopped having children. She had proven that she could bear a healthy child. She had already become pregnant three times. Time had not run out for her. It seems to me that she would be running a far greater risk by sleeping around to increase her chance of becoming pregnant than if she just took her chances with the king. Bernard uses the argument of the king's sexual problems to support his view, but Henry was not stupid. He would know that if he had not had a successful bout of sex with Anne, then she spontaneously became pregnant, then it would not have been his. His argument just doesn't seem likely to me. But, like Bernard says, people don't always act logically or in their best interest. They make mistakes, they do things in the heat of the moment or in a cloud of fear. I'm not saying that she definitely did not conduct affairs, I'm just saying that the evidence does not support it and I don't buy it. So, to sum up, the Bernardian view is that it was the discovery of the affairs that did for Anne. My view, the Ivesian view, and the popular one, is that it was a devastating Cromwellian counter-attack. His position was threatened by Anne, by her faction and by the unfolding events beyond either of their control. It's basic Machiavelli. In order to stay in power, you must remove anyone else who is the ear of the powerful by any means necessary. This seems to me to be the most likely scenario, as I really don't buy the panic over babies argument, as I've said a few times, 
nor do I think that it was due to them just having a few blazing rows. I also don't think that the blame can be placed entirely at the feet of Jane Seymour. It wasn't just Anne's machinations that had brought down Catherine, and this situation was far less serious, I would argue, than the one facing Henry in 1527. Those three things certainly were, though, weapons in Cromwell's arsenal when he made his move. The most remarkable thing about the fall of Anne Boleyn is just how quickly it all went down. Let's look at the timeline. Anne started 1536 rejoicing at the death of Catherine of Aragon and confident that she was carrying the next King of England inside her pregnant belly. We're not sure when Henry became involved with Jane Seymour. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It could have been as early as the summer of 1535, but more likely it was sometime towards the end of that year or even later, as Henry tended to conduct his affairs during his wife's pregnancies. But for now, while she may not have been wild about it, Jane was not a threat. Then, at the end of January, she miscarries, and her husband nearly dies in a tourney accident. In March, she falls out with Cromwell. John Skip makes his infamous sermon on the 2nd of April 1536, which, it is likely, Cromwell would have seen as an attack on him made by the Boleyns. The king then tears him a new one after his foreign policy misstep of thinking a deal could be made with the empire on the basis of compromising over Princess Mary's illegitimacy. This all happened on 18th of April, 1536. All of this took place over a period of less than four months. I estimated that the events that persuaded Henry to ditch Catherine took place at its shortest over the course of about two to three years, and then it then took seven years to bring her down. It would take Cromwell less than a month to see Anne buried in a crypt. Apologies if things are about to get very dark, but I don't want to diminish the depth of this tragedy. The problem that Cromwell had here is that Henry did not want to be split from Anne. Look what he had gone through to get her the crown in the first place. As recently as two days ago, he had publicly committed himself to Anne. On the 24th of April, a commission of Oyer and Termina was issued at Westminster. This was not unusual. Its goals were to investigate, essentially, whether anyone had been treasoning recently, and to bring them to justice. Then, three days later, a parliament was assembled. Cromwell was the master of legal and political detail. He knew that if he was going to bring Anne down, he needed it to be presented as a fait accompli. All the pieces needed to be moving before the board was even set. On the 30th of April, Anne had that little contretemps with Henry Norris that I described earlier. 
It was overheard by one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, and soon it was the talk of the court. Anne and Norris both knew the potential seriousness of what had gone on, and quickly sought to play it all down, but to no avail. Norris volunteered to swear under oath that the Queen was, quote, a good woman. One suspects that only made everything worse. Anne went to the King to ask his forgiveness, and brought with her a trump card. This is according to an account written by an observer who wrote this in a letter to Queen Elizabeth. Quote, Never shall I forget the sorrow which I felt when I saw the most serene queen, your most religious mother, carrying you, still a little baby, in her arms, and entreating the most serene king, your father, in Greenwich Palace, from the open window of which he was looking into the courtyard, when she brought you to him. I did not perfectly understand what had been going on, but the faces and gestures of the speakers plainly showed that the king was angry, although he could conceal his anger wonderfully well. Yet from the protracted conference of the council, it was most obvious to everyone that some deeper, difficult question was being discussed. Her attempt to mollify her husband, using Elizabeth, clearly did not work, but Henry played his cards close to his chest. On that same day, the first arrest took place, that of Mark Smeaton the musician. He was detained at Cromwell's residence in Stepney on suspicion of adultery with the Queen. This was all very hush-hush. No one at court knew anything was wrong. Possibly under heavy torture, after an interrogation which lasted over 24 hours, he confessed. The next day, May Day, there was a joust at Greenwich attended by Anne, Henry and the court. Two of the key participants were George Boleyn and Henry Norris, who were on opposite sides of the joust. Henry even lent his friend a mount for the occasion, Partway through, Henry slipped away. He would never see his wife again. He parted with Norris for York Place, and all the way Norris was trying to persuade Henry that he had done nothing wrong. According to his servant, quote, All the way, the king had Mr Norris in examination and promised him his pardon in case he would utter the truth, but whatsoever could be said or done, Mr Norris would confess nothing to the king. It appears now that Henry fully bought into Cromwell's story. The fate of Anne and the other men was sealed. Norris was detained at York Place, and would meet Smeaton in the Tower the following day. The following morning, the 2nd of May, Anne was arrested, and had her first proper interrogation by the King's Council. This included her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, who made no real attempt to help his niece. That evening, she was taken from Greenwich down the river to the Tower, the final residence of her life, a cruel repeating of the trip that she had made on her coronation progress some three years before. Like last time, there was a great crowd of spectators and a noble escort, but the similarities ended there. She was greeted there by the constable of the tower, William Kingston. She asked him, quote, Shall I go to the dungeon? He replied, quote, No, madam, you shall go into your lodging that you lay in at your coronation. This is a horribly cruel thing to do, but also an understandable one. Anne was still the queen, and as such she had to be given the most comfortable lodgings, irrespective of the charges. It was now that the full seriousness of her situation seemed to wash over Anne, and she fell into hysterics, mixing uncontrollable laughter with outbursts of sorrow, crying out, quote, It is too good for me. Jesus, have mercy upon me. On the same day, her brother was too arrested, interrogated, and sent to the tower. But like Norris and Anne, he was a nobleman, and so there was no evidence yet that would condemn them. There was Smeaton's confession, but the word of a common musician was not enough. Cromwell knew this, and so decided to resort to some more dirty tricks. Anne, as you can see, was not in a good place. Who would be? 
Cromwell took advantage of this and surrounded her with women led by Lady Kingston, the constable's wife, who, with their sympathies and leading questions, allowed Anne to condemn herself. All those quotes that I read earlier from Anne came from right now. She told them the full details of her conversation with Norris, and then fatefully she revealed her conversations with Francis Weston that I mentioned earlier. He would soon join her in the tower. She then further implicated Mark Sweeten, but not that that was required. William Brereton would soon join them all. The reason was clear. He was an important member of the Boleyn faction, and it was open season for them. But of course, none of this amounted to a confession by Anne, but as we will see, this tragedy was one of legal history's greatest farces. To call it a kangaroo court doesn't even come close. With all the prominent Boleyns either in the tower or terrified into silence, the business of trying them could begin. Let's not forget, this all happened over the course of two to three days. The Boleyns were hit by a Cromwellian blitzkrieg. Henry would spend the next few days with Jane Seymour, leaving his chief minister to do his dirty work for him. To finally finish off the accused, Cromwell needed noble witnesses, and he got them from some unexpected sources. The first was one of Anne's former ladies-in-waiting, Lady Wingfield, who was dead by the time of their trial, so could not offer context to a letter that was discovered in her estate, which seemed to suggest that she and Anne shared a dark secret. Quote, I pray you, as you love me, to give credence to my servant, this bearer, touching your removing and anything else that he shall tell you on my behalf, for I will desire you to do nothing but that shall be for your wealth. And madam, though at all times I have not shown the love that I bear to you as much as it were indeed, yet now I trust that you shall well prove that I love you in a great deal more than I fare you. And assuredly, next mine own mother I know, no woman alive I would love better. And at length, with God's grace, you shall prove that it is unfeigned. And I trust you do not know me, for such one that I will write nothing to comfort you in your trouble, but I will abide by it as long as I live. And therefore I pray you leave your indiscreet trouble, both for displeasing of God and also for displeasing of me, that doth love you so entirely, and trusting in God that you will thus do, I make an end, with the ill hand of your own assured friend during my life. This was in no way damning evidence of anything at all, but that wasn't important. It made Anne look fishy, and that was enough. More sensational evidence, though, would come from Anne's sister-in-law and George Boleyn's wife, Jane. Lady Rochford told the prosecution that Anne had made disparaging remarks about Henry's sexual capacities. Now, a great deal of myth surrounds Jane Boleyn, and it's hard to tell fact from fiction. She reportedly confirmed stories of Anne's incestuous affair with her husband, saying, quote, that there was a familiarity between the Queen and her brother beyond what so near a relationship could justify. Further testimonies were gathered from Anne's other ladies-in-waiting. Let's not forget that these women spent nine on every moment together while at court. If she was up to something, then they would surely know. The most important witnesses from them is the Countess of Worcester, who may well have been the one who told the court about Anne's fateful conversation with Norris. According to an account written by a Frenchman, Lancelot de Carle, Lady Worcester was being admonished by her brother for being, well, let's just say being loose with her morals, and she retorted with an astonishing response. Quote, a lord of the Privy Council, seeing clear evidence that his sister loved certain persons with a dishonourable love, admonished her fraternally. She acknowledged her offence, but said it was little in her case in comparison with that of the Queen, as he might ascertain from Mark Smeaton, declaring that she was guilty of incest with her own brother. It took Cromwell a week to make the final preparations for his case. 
and so on the 10th of May, a grand jury was assembled at Westminster Hall to decide on the prima facie evidence, which, shockingly, they decided was ready for trial. The first people to be tried were the non-Boleyns, Norris, Brereton, Weston and Smeaton, and it all began on Friday the 12th of May, just under two weeks since the first arrest. Cromwell was leaving nothing to chance, the jury was thoroughly rigged with men dependent on his favour. They had no chance. Smeaton confessed to adultery, as he had done so before, but not guilty to everything else. The others pled not guilty to all the charges, which included the charge of treason, which carried the penalty of death. They were permitted to speak in their own defence, but it did no good. They were found guilty of all charges, and sentenced to a traitor's death, hanging, drawing and quartering. Anne and George Boleyn suffered what must have been the most agonising weekend of their lives, waiting in the tower in their respective quarters for their trials, which were due to take place the following Monday. It took place in the tower's King's Hall, and this all must have resembled a genteel but no less bloodthirsty version of the Roman gladiatorial games, with special stands erected that seated 2,000. Cromwell wanted as many people as possible to witness the disgrace and sentencing of Anne Boleyn. Sadly, we do not have the trial documents surviving to us, but we do have eyewitness accounts which, naturally, do not agree on the specifics. The jury was just as rigged as for the previous trial, all men loyal to the King and to Cromwell. Anne faced the music first. I will read the indictment in full. The dating system is a little confusing, so I've taken out the years, but they do run roughly in chronological order. Quote, Whereas Queen Anne has been the wife of Henry VIII for three years and more, she, despising her marriage and entertaining malice against the king, and following daily her frail and carnal lust, did falsely and traitorously procure by base conversations and kisses, touchings, gifts, and other infamous incitations diverse of the king's daily and familiar servants to be her adulterers and concubines, so that several of the king's servants yielded to her vile provocations. On the 6th October at Westminster, and diverse days before and after, she procured, by sweet words, kisses, touches, and otherwise, Henry Norris of Westminster, gentleman of the Privy Chamber, to violate her, by reason whereof he did so at Westminster on the 12th of October. And they had illicit intercourse at various other times, both before and after, sometimes by his procurement, and sometimes by that of the Queen. Also the Queen on the 2nd of November, and several times before and after, at Westminster, procured and incited her own natural brother, George Boleyn, Lord Rochford, gentleman of the Privy Chamber, to violate her, luring him with her tongue in the said George's mouth, and the said George's tongue in hers, and also with kisses, presents, and jewels, whereby he, despising the commands of God and all human laws, violated, and carnally knew the said Queen, his own sister, at Westminster, which he also did on diverse other days before and after at the same place, sometimes by his own procurement and sometimes by the Queen's. Also the Queen, on the 3rd of December, and diverse days before and after at Westminster, procured one William Brereton, late of Westminster, gentleman of the Privy Chamber, to violate her, whereby he did so on the 8th of December at Hampton Court in the parish of Little Hampton, and so on several other days before and after, sometimes by his own procurement and sometimes by that of the Queen. Also the Queen on the 8th of March, and at several other times before and since, procured Sir Francis Weston of Westminster, gentleman of the Privy Chamber, etc., whereby he did so on the 20th of May. Also the Queen on the 12th of April and diverse days before and since, at Westminster, procured Mark Smeaton, groom of the Privy Chamber, to violate her, whereby he did so at Westminster on the 26th of April. Moreover, the said Lords Rochford, Norris, Brereton, 
Weston and Smeaton, being thus inflamed with carnal love of the Queen, and having become very jealous of each other, gave her secret gifts and pledges while carrying out this illicit intercourse. And the Queen, on her part, could not endure any of them to converse with any other woman, without showing great displeasure. And on the 27th November, and other days before and after at Westminster, she gave them great gifts to encourage them in their crimes. And further, the said Queen and these other traitors, on the 31st of October at Westminster, conspired the death and destruction of the King. The Queen often saying that she would marry one of them as soon as the King died, and affirming that she would never love the King in her heart. And the King, having short time since become aware of the said abominable crimes and treasons against himself, took such inward displeasure and heaviness, especially from his said Queen's malice and adultery, that certain harms and perils had befallen his royal body. And thus the said queen and the other traitors aforesaid have committed their treasons in contempt of the crown and and of the issue and heirs of the said king and queen. Okay, so quite a specific list of charges there with dates and places and everything. Now we cannot totally disprove all of these, but we can say at least about three quarters of these are totally bogus as we can place Anne or the others in different places when these liaisons were supposed to have occurred. You have to come to your own view regarding the other quarter or so, but like I said earlier, I'm not buying it. No longer the broken wreck that had spoken so unfortunately candidly to the spies in her midst, Anne spoke eloquently in her own defence. God, I wish we had a record of what she said, but the sources, most of whom are normally hostile to her, are unanimous in their praise, though some do so in a rather backhanded way. Lancelot de Carles wrote, quote, the Queen, meanwhile, having no further hope in this world, would confess nothing, but she did not give up her greatness, but spoke to the Lords as a mistress. Those who came to interrogate were astonished. The Reofficely Chronicle recorded, quote, She made so wise and discreet answers to all those things laid against her, excusing herself with her words so clearly as though she had never been at fault to the same. Even Eustace Chapuis seems rather appalled by this sham of a trial, though he delights in its outcome. He first states that the men in the previous trial were, quote, condemned upon presumption and certain indications without valid proof or confession. He then goes on to say that Anne, upon hearing the charges, responded, quote, these things she totally denied and gave to each a plausible answer. <coughs> but of course, this was all in vain and everyone knew it. The verdict was guilty, and in a further piece of cruelty, it was none other than Anne's uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, who had passed sentence. Quote, because thou hast offended against our sovereign the king's grace in committing treason against his person, and here attainted of the same the law of the realm is this, that thou hast deserved death, and thy judgment is this, that thou shalt be burned here within the Tower of London on the green, else to have thy head smitten off, as the king's pleasure shall be further known of the same. You might have expected Anne to have broken down at this, to have collapsed into a heap or screamed at her uncle for his cowardice. But no. Chapuis states that, quote, The concubine was condemned first, and having heard the sentence which was to be burned or beheaded at the king's pleasure, she preserved her composure, saying that she held herself pour sout salue de l'amour, and that what she regretted most was that the above persons, who were innocent and loyal to the king, were to die for her. The French there roughly translates to ready to be greeted by death. This either-or verdict is really rather odd, and yet another cool twist of the knife. An execution by beheading was an honour bestowed upon the nobility, except in the case of high treason such as for the men. It was the most painless method, theoretically at least. 
burning at the stake, well, I can't think of many less pleasant ways to die, though the men in the trial would face a far worse fate. She would have to wait to find out just how gruesome her fate would be. Her brother was, of course, also convicted and sentenced to die as well. He reportedly unleashed a masterclass of jurisprudence, and despite everything, many in the courtroom reportedly thought he might yet save himself, but of course he couldn't. Cromwell would not let such a thing happen. The first to be executed were the men. Although some sorts suggest that she was forced to watch, the logistics of this make it unlikely. She would have to wait four days before her execution. Heaven knows what was going through her mind. Ives describes it beautifully in his biography of Anne. Quote, Deserted, cut off and disorientated in time, Anne became avid for news. She built great castles of imagination that would not reign until she was released, that the evangelical bishops would intervene on her behalf, that most English people were praying for her, that a disaster from heaven would follow her execution. She harked back to a happy time with Margaret of Austria. Sometimes her hope ran high, the king was doing all to test her. She would be sent to a nunnery. At others, she would be determined to die. But increasingly, preparations for death occupied her thoughts, hours spent with her almoner and before the blessed sacrament, until her spirit reached the exaltation of the martyr. According to the constable of the tower, quote, I have seen many men and also women executed, and that they have been in great sorrow, and to my knowledge this lady hath much joy and pleasure in death. Anne may have been going through all seven stages of grief in the space of a few days, but she would not be spared one final twist of the knife, and it was a horrible one. Her marriage to Henry was declared null and void. She had never been married to the king. Her daughter Elizabeth was bastardised. It was not enough to take her life, they also took her marriage, her crown, and her daughter's future. Why? Well, it's not entirely clear. It wasn't even necessary. Once Anne was dead, then Henry could marry Jane Seymour perfectly legally. They did not make that task any easier or quicker, really. The preparation for this had been going on since before the trial. On the 16th of May, the day after her conviction, Thomas Cramner was sent to see Anne to persuade her to admit that her marriage to Henry was invalid. We don't know what was discussed there. Anne may have been offered a more painless death if she cooperated, and it may have been that she did, as Cramner declared the marriage dissolved the next day. The evidence, well, was twofold, really. The first was that Anne had been pre-contracted to Henry Percy, and the other was that, since Henry had previously slept with her sister, then the marriage could never have been legal in the first place. She would be executed by beheading, and it would be by sword rather than axe as was usual. This may have been by her request, but more likely it was the chivalric and Arthurian fancies of the king that led to the decision. Reportedly, she remarked to William Kingston, Constable of the Tower, quote, I heard to say the executioner was very good, and I have such a little neck. At which point she broke out laughing. I guess this is about as literal as gallows humour can get. On the 19th of May, 1536, just over three weeks since her initial arrest, Anne Boleyn, still technically the Queen of England by some legal quirk, was taken to the west side of the White Tower at the Tower of London and to the scaffold. Escorted by Kingston and four attendants, she climbed up to her place of execution. She was wearing a grey gown lined with fur and an ermine mantle, symbols of royalty. She then gave a speech to the braying crowd. The most reliable and complete version of this comes in the Chronicle of Edward Hall, which was used in the TV show The Tudors almost word for word. And so instead of hearing them from me, here are the much more dulcet tones of Natalie Dormer uttering Anne's final public declaration. 
good Christian people, I have come here to die according to the law and thus yield myself to the will of the king, my lord. And if in my life I ever did offend the king's grace, then surely with my death I do now atone. I pray and beseech you all to pray for the life of the king. My sovereign lord and yours, who is one of the best princes on the face of the earth, who has always treated me so well. Wherefore I submit to death with a good will, humbly asking pardon of all the world. If anyone should take up my case, I ask them only to judge it kindly. She then lay her head on the scaffold, and in one swift strike, her life was taken from her. I don't want to dwell on who was more to blame for Anne's fate. Some lay all the blame at the feet of Cromwell. Others say that the buck stops with Henry, and a few say it was really her own fault. Whatever. The execution of a Queen of England by her husband the King was unprecedented. In the Middle Ages, nobles were incredibly rarely executed. It wasn't the done thing. They were usually either imprisoned or exiled. Queens have previously gotten themselves into some pretty serious trouble, but never had they suffered a fate worse than imprisonment. Eleanor of Aquitaine had rebelled, but she was imprisoned. Isabella of France sought to hold all power away from her son Edward III, but she was briefly imprisoned and then released. The Wars of the Roses had meant the bloodier fates were meted out to those of noble rank, yet still women were usually spared. Not now. Even if she had been guilty of the crimes for which she was accused, in almost any other time period, under any other king, she would have been imprisoned or exiled. If she had committed adultery, then she would not have been the first, nor by any means the last, but only one other queen would face death for committing such a crime, and she too was the wife of Henry. Her death was down to the paranoia and gutlessness of a hypermasculine king with a soft ego, and the arch-Machiavellian machinations of a chief minister who would stop at nothing to consolidate his power and place himself at the apex of the political pyramid. Something that I did not mention earlier is that a few other men were briefly imprisoned on suspicion of sleeping with Anne, but were later acquitted. One was the poet Thomas Wyatt, who, while in his cell, ruminated on how rising high in the snake pit of Henry's court could lead you down a road to ruin. It is called... Innocence, truth, and fidelity. My enemies surround my soul. And each verse ends with the Latin phrase, Circa Rainia Tornat, which translates to, Around the throne, the thunder roars. Who lists his wealth and ease retain, himself, let him unknown contain. Press not too fast in that gate, where the return stands by disdain. For sure, Circa Rainia Tornat. The high mountains are blasted oft, when the low valley is marred and soft. Fortune with health stands at debate. This fall is grievous from aloft, and sure, circa rainia tonat. These bloody days have broken my heart. My lust, my youth, they them depart. And blind desire of estate, who haste to climb seeks to revert of truth, circa rainia tonat. The bell tower showed me such sight that in my head sticks day and night. There did I lean out of a grate, for all favour, glory, or might, that yet succour reigneth to not. By proof, I say, there I did learn, would helpeth not defence to yearn, of innocency to plead or prate. Bear low, therefore, give God the stern, for sure, 
Circa Rainier to Nat. That Anne was extraordinary is without doubt. She was, and is, one of the lowest-born queens in English history. She was probably the first queen to unseat a rival. Ives sums up her legacy in the final chapter of his biography. Quote, What does come across to us across the centuries is the impression of a person who is strangely appealing to the early 21st century. A woman in her own right, taken on her own terms in a man's world. A woman who mobilised her education, her style and her presence to outweigh the disadvantages of her sex, of only moderate good looks, but taking a court and a king by storm. Perhaps in the end, it is Thomas Cromwell's assessment that comes nearest. Intelligence, spirit and courage. Anne Boleyn will never be forgotten, and she will likely always be the most talked about and most controversial queen in my country's history. So next week we have a chat episode with Claire Ridgway, and then the week after that we will begin with the replacement of Anne on the throne. The rather boring and plain, some might say, Jane Seymour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.